Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our public conversations, our deepest values, and how we might build a bit more empathy and understanding across the many divides in our common life. Every episode, I have a meaty chat with someone with some kind of public voice or platform, rappers, writers, priests, poets, columnists, academics, and more. I'm trying to have a bit of a different kind of conversation with these people who so shape our culture, not adversarial or promotional, but reflective and open. I am very imperfectly, as I go along, learning to listen to the wide range of views and experiences that make up each complex and valuable human being, no matter how much I may or may not agree with them or may or may not have experience of where they're coming from. This is your regular reminder to rate, review and share the podcast if you possibly can. I've been hearing from people from wonderfully different perspectives, different industries and even different countries in the world who were sent an episode by a friend who said, you might find this interesting. And they did, and now they're regular listeners. So thank you for those people who've already been doing that, and thank you in advance for those who might now do so. And this episode might actually be a really good one to send to someone in your life who is either a long-term gardener or one of the millions who started getting interested in gardening during the pandemic. I really loved talking to Sarah Eberly, who is one of the UK's leading garden designers and landscape architects. She's won 17 gold medals at the Chelsea Flower Show, which I gather is very good, and also multiple best in-show gardens at Chelsea and Hampton Court and elsewhere. We spoke about why nature is sacred to her, what gardening teaches us about compassion and humility, the legacy of her unconventional schooling at Dartington College and her free-range childhood on the moors in Devon, and why gardening can bring people together across divides. Honestly, as someone who has only a very embryonic interest in gardening, like literally in the last few months, I've planted my very first seeds and I'm fighting a running battle with squirrels and slugs, but previously had actually zero knowledge. I wasn't expecting this conversation to be as rich and as stimulating as it was. Sarah is a real character and really inspiring in her understanding of the world and what it takes to be creative and innovative and kind in the world of gardening. So I'm now feeling even more inspired to go out and get my hands in the soil. I really hope you enjoy listening. Sarah, we're going to go straight in with a hefty word, which is uh, sacred. And it's really a way to help us go deep quickly to get below small talk and chit chat. But if it helps, I tend to, to, one of the things that helps people think about it is, you know, if someone offered you money to give up this thing, you would feel that like, you know, compromised or disgust reaction to this. Um, maybe a principle, maybe a thing, maybe a world. And we try and bracket family out of it because hopefully everyone's, you know, dear ones, you, you wouldn't sell those. Um, but uh, other than that, is there anything that comes up for you? Is there a hunch or an instinct about what might have functioned as, as something sacred or very deep principles in your life? Oh, absolutely. Uh, that, in some ways, that's the easy one because for me, it's, it's nature. Nature is the core of everything in my life. And working with nature has taught me um, or led my view of 
my life's direction, uh, what I hold dear, my morality, if you like. Uh, so absolutely, literally, I cannot live without nature. None of us can. And it is absolutely critical to the core of everything I do. It's my passion. I would love to hear more. Can you expand for me on how it shaped the direction of your life and your morality? I think nature, working with nature, when you really look at nature, and the trouble is these days we're so busy, aren't we, that quite often we take a lot of things for advantage. And as more and more people live in urban environments, they become more divorced from the processes of nature and of life. Uh, We hear about this quite often, about how we lose touch with where our food comes from. um, and, And, you know, we tend to look maybe more to the future and less to the past and understand the processes of where we come from and how the world works. So I think for me, I, I, as, a, as a child, I was always fascinated by the processes of nature. And I find that those who, who are passionate about nature, um, and maybe in particular those people who are involved in the nurture, whether that's gardening or landscape architecture or you know, many other professions. Um, It teaches you how to be caring. It it gives people, I think, empathy and compassion when working with with other living things. And it it probably comes for those who who work with animals as well. Um, But I certainly think that the understanding the how we are truly interlinked with life processes and nature and how important nurturing is, is, is the reason that so many people say that gardeners are such nice people. <laughs> and I think they're nice because they are empathetic. They do understand that it's about give and take. It's about a conversation. You cannot tell a plant what to do. You can have a conversation with it. And you can also think you're helping, and actually you're not. You're doing quite the opposite. And so it gives you this balance of all sorts of things, including power. What is your power? What is the power of the human to, to interpose into a process? Uh, and how does that work? So I think it naturally breeds kindness and empathy when forced to work. Well, nobody's forced, but when you begin to understand how it, it is a process and you cannot dictate that process, Nature will always win. There's a, there's a wonderful saying I heard once that was, um, any would-be world dictator should first practice on a small garden, which is just so true. It's about discussion and conversation. Yeah, and some humility, it sounds like, coming through. Humility too, absolutely. Because, um, shall we say, power is a powerful thing. It's an aphrodisiac and, and uh, we, we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of our own self-importance, but both individually and collectively as society. You know, collectively, we're all very powerful, but we need to make sure that that's working to the benefit of all and, and not to the destruction of all. And I think you know, that is seriously what we have to consider with the current climate emergency uh, and the situation we now have as well with the pandemic. And I think one of the if you could say there's a positive out of the pandemic, is that people, due, due to the process, I think, of just having to shut away and lock down, 
have understood the need for nature. They found solace in nature. They found support in nature. There's so much that I want to go back to. And I'll just say kind of in brackets, that is a beautiful and fascinating unpacking of the kind of moral, the virtues really that you build through gardening. The reason I pressed on the morality thing is in other conversations that I'm in, and, and they're quite old fashioned now in some ways, but they're still dominant. The, the idea that nature would teach us about morality has been, has been sometimes framed in a much more, actually now I think about it, much more gendered way. And I'm thinking about the Tennyson quote, you know, nature red in tooth and claw and the focus on the kind of carnivorous animals and, um, you know, survival of the fittest as a way of justifying some pretty morally abhorrent mm. practices. So it's just lovely to hear you, um, really flip that on his head and say nature teaches us the character and the virtues of nurture and humility and patience and care. It's really beautiful. I, I think it's interesting because there is always what we might see as cruelty in nature. You know, we see this thing about the survival of the fittest, but it's about balance. Within that, there's always balance and there's rarely cruelty. It, it's a natural order. Um, and and you, you do get the occasional strange behavior in groups of animals but essentially you know if they they kill they kill to to eat they kill no more than they need to eat they don't kill more often than they need to eat I, and one wonders whether sometimes when uh animals are under pressure through density of of humans throughout the, the planet and a shortage of food etc it creates a different behavior and it's actually more to do with us than it is to do with them that we've created these pressures in the world. Yeah. Uh, so much I want to dig into. But first, I'm going to say, as you're talking about nature, it sounds like there is a spirituality there. And I have some friends and contacts who are who are pagan, who that's their kind of religious identity. Mm. How much mm. is there kind of a spiritual practice element to your relationship with nature? Increasingly. Increasingly. I would say that the older I get, the more pagan I become. Um, I, I'm actually not religious per se. Uh, I'm, I am actually, you know, grew up in a Christian household um, and I'm not anti. Um, but, but I see that for me, if I had a God or I, I had a church, it would be nature. And I think, you know, Psalm 23 brings that to play, uh, working on this garden for the Bible Society at Chelsea Flower Show. You know, I, I, when I reviewed it, because when I was approached, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to do it. And the only reason for that really was that I'd been at Chelsea for six consecutive years. And I thought, yeah, it's, quite, it's very tiring. Did I really want to go back and do another garden and not have a break? But I went to meet them. And, and when they told me what it was about, and I read through the psalm again, you know, it's a psalm that we're, we're most, a lot of us are f familiar with merely from, from school, or at least people my age. Um, and, you know, the, the first, the first line, or the, you know, the second to fourth line, you know, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And that particular line, he restores my soul. That is what I get from, from nature. It restores my soul. It makes me understand who I am. It keeps me grounded. I have private conversations with nature you know, that auspicious place you go to and you sit and you think, uh, 
much like you did when you were a teenager, trying to find out who you were and what your place in, in the world was. And I, I still do that. For me, the delights of watching, for instance, light, the way light works through nature, through trees and landscapes, uh, just fills me with joy. But at the same time, then, one of my favourite things as a child would be walking on the clifftops uh, during, you know, massive storms where you know, your hair is blown away and you're soaking wet. I still like that. I still like going out in the rain. Yeah. Or, you know, I still like storms. I don't like going and walking across a field in a storm, but being safe in your house and hearing a storm. There's something comforting about this whole process an understanding that nature can be um, a kind servant and a cruel master. But that gives you good lessons as well about, you know, about life in general and understanding the processes that you go through. Yeah. So tell me a bit more about your childhood. And really, I'd just like you to paint a picture of it for me. And particularly if there were any big ideas that you think were formative, political, philosophical, religious, that, you know, have have helped shape the trajectory of your life. Yeah, I grew up, I grew up in um, Dartmouth in South Devon by the sea. And I had a very free childhood. My parents, you know, they were lovely parents, and they trusted us. And you know, we, we went out the door at 8.30 in the morning and we came home at 5.30 for tea. And we just walked, we played, we played in the woods. We had to uh, be able to swim them out of the dark without um, without help, you know, without a life jacket. So we had to be able to swim across the widest part, there and back, which my dad used to row along beside us. And we had to do that early in the morning because there was never either, you know, there would be too many boats around to do that safely otherwise. And once we could do that and change a spark plug on the engine of the boat, we could go out in the boat as long as there were three of us. Wow. So it was that rule of three. Yeah. And we used to, you know, we were really, you know, the the adventurous five. I was going to say, it sounds like Swallows and Amazons. It was Swallows and Amazons. And we we used to take the boat up the river and camp on a farmer's land. And we'd row across in the morning to get our milk from the cows, you know, in the morning. Oh, it was amazing. It was amazing. Um, And so I was completely sort of immersed in nature. Uh, We used to carve our names in trees. You know, if you did that now, you're a vandal. But that's about pressure, you you know, how many times can somebody write a, a name in a tree before they damage it? But it is about pressure rather than the process. We used to make whistles, you know, all sorts of things that I learned about nature, totally engrossed in it. And I used to walk up the local lane. We were on the sort of edge of the town. And I just fascinated how the light hit the hedgerows. You get all these textures. And I just, I always knew that that's what I wanted to do. And I was lucky. I, I went to a very famous school called Dartington Hall School, which was a progressive social experiment uh, set up by the Elmhursts. And so it was very free and easy. You know, technically lessons weren't compulsory. You didn't have to wear uniforms. You called the staff by the Christian names. But one of the biggest things that I think it, it left me with was that they always used to say the most important word in the English language is why. Why do we do it this way? Why don't we change? Why do you accept that? Why don't we do it this way? 
And, and it taught me, if you like, a healthy disrespect or respect for authority. I do have a, I do have respect for authority, but that, that respect doesn't uh, preclude me from asking why and investigating the processes. So I'm not fearful of the authority, but I just have that free, free-spirited childhood that allowed me to really think about my world around me. And I was very philosophical. You know, I, I read my way through all the Plato and um, Bertrand Russell's books and and I was fascinated by a theory of numbers. And, and I loved all that. And in fact, I, I did wonder for a while whether I'd like to do philosophy uh, at university. But actually, I had a very practical approach. And I thought I needed to do something that was um, something that was basically more, more practical and usable. And with my love of landscape, um, which wasn't particularly a love of gardens at the time, it didn't didn't preclude gardens, but my interest was the wider landscape, um, which led me to to do landscape architecture. So I'd, I'd actually been to see my careers advisor at school after I did my O-levels, which is equivalent to GCSEs, and said, landscapes don't just happen. Somebody does that. That's what I want to do. And she said, leave it with me. I'll come back to you. Uh, in a couple of weeks. She did. She did landscape architecture. So that's what I did for five years. And it was like, uh, yeah, it was just the right place for me in many ways. Um, but yeah, so it's been a lifelong passion. I gather from um, other interviews that you you did something quite unusual in building a very successful business whilst having three children at a time where there weren't hundreds of female-led hmm. businesses in general, let alone garden businesses. Tell me a little bit about that experience and what you learned. I think this upbringing at Dartington Hall School, this experience, I never really understood why people thought it was odd, you know. Uh, and so, I, you know, I used to have, I'm sorry, children, but I used to have a child with measles on the floor of my office or something. You know, I used to take my children to work if I, I essentially I did have some help, but very rarely. Um, I used to rush home and pick up the children from school and then I'd sit at the drawing board, you know, in between dealing with the children. I used to get up at three in the morning and work um, because I had to fit everything in. But, you know, I used to get the occasional comment like when I'd take a child to a meeting and people in those days very sort of corporate 80s you know broad shoulders and all that and people say that's very unprofessional and I'd say no it's not unprofessional is not going to the meeting at all and I couldn't really understand rules because I've never had rules you see so it's still the case if you look at my work particularly my show work and people will say because uh, you always do things that are so different. And, you know, how do you do it? I did something at Chelsea in 2007, uh, the, what's, what's known as the Mars Garden, which was a, an extraterrestrial garden on Mars. And people are like, what may have made you think of that? I mean, why did you think you could do that? And it's like, well, why should I not think I could do that? You know, but how did you ask them? Well, I just asked, you know. Well, that's brave. And I'm like, is it? Don't, don't people normally behave in a, in a way that's true to them and all the rest of it? So, you know, the, the fact that I, I, I guess I'm somewhere between being 
very innovative and highly creative and a loose cannon. And so, you know, I'm somewhere with both of those, you know, sometimes I slip into one, sometimes I slip into the other. And I'm very aware of it now. I think, if you know, when I first heard somebody say to me, you're a bit of a loose cannon, I was quite offended. No, I'm not, you know. But actually, I am a bit. Um, and that's because I, I don't fear the unknown. I don't fear the unusual. I don't fear the question or, or the answer. But I think that's a healthy thing to do, as long as it's tempered by, by an understanding of um, respect and humility. Yeah, and it sounds like you're a pragmatist as well, which probably helps, you know, when I things am. need to just get done. <laughs> yes, I am. Um, so I... I think with your your interest in philosophy, you'll, you'll understand this question. I've been trying to work out how to frame it, but I am very much a, I'm a classic pandemic, brand new gardener. We were living in a flat until halfway through. I had a reputation for always killing houseplants. I am, you know, I now have a garden, which I'm very tentatively, you know, growing tomatoes and things. But prior to this year, the only kind of lasting impression of gardening for me that really excited me was the play Arcadia, which is by Tom Stoppard. And it is, it's an amazing play, but all the way through there is this very strong theme of the way that um, garden design is connecting with the dominant ideas of the time. That um, Capability Brown and the Romantics are kind of set in contrast to what went before, which was this much more formal, straight lines, controlled, I gather, sort of French-influenced but enlightenment tinge. As I'm saying all these things, I'm worried I'm saying nonsense but I have always since then thought I'm so fascinated in in the way ideas show up in plays and literature which I'm a sort of word driven person and it only really occurred to me researching everything that I'm that that probably is is clear in gardening as well what's been your experiences of the way garden design has changed over the course of your career and does it in fact sort of reflect the ideas in the society or was Tom Stoppard using a you know a, a literary device there no, he wasn't. It, it, he's absolutely right. It does. Um, it's influenced by society. I and mean, It brings us back to the question, is garden design an art form? And I think that that's, that's, gets people quite lively at times. So there's very big movement that says, absolutely not, it's not. And others who say, you know, distinctly, you know, what does art do? It reflects society. Um uh, and, and definitely it does reflect society. I mean, in more recent times, you just have to look back and see, if you like, the power uh, lifestyle gardens of the 80s, particularly the power bit for the 80s and the lifestyle in the 90s, you know, everything reflecting technology, um, the power of machinery, you know, sophisticated machinery and, and you know, computer-generated stuff. And, and now with the um, climate crisis and... Uh, a more sensitive approach to our world in general, gardens have become about being much more naturalistic, about being softer, about being less about control and more about working with the plants, a greater sympathy to native plants that want to just drop in that people call weeds. A weed is only a plant in the wrong place. So there are plenty of uh, uh, highly uh, ornamental plants that I would call weeds when they're placed incorrectly. So I definitely think that um, garden design does reflect society, how it's thinking, uh, which is, I think, natural because, you know, those, you know, 
as garden designers, we cannot we cannot help but be influenced about what we see around us. And if you're inquisitive, you want to follow that and you want to investigate it because being a creative means that you're all, well, you should be always investigating, moving forward, trying things. Um, you know, once you get stuck into a rut and a style, I think that uh, it, it's time to, to reinvestigate what you're trying to get out of the profession. Um, we all have a style in the sense that um, generally that we, that we have a signature to our work. You know, and it may be to do with spatial organisation. It may be about a particular few plants that you like, that you tend to repeat. But it's not the same as, as actually trying to bring a different character and feel um, and nature to your to your garden. So, I mean, for me, my work, you know, I'm, I'm renowned for being able to work and do very different garden styles. But the thing that connects me is, I think probably because of my training as a landscape architecture, is genius loci is the most important thing to me. It's the setting, um, the context of the garden. So for me, where the garden is, how it relates to its, its location, and then how it relates to the buildings around it and the people's use of it are what I always follow. I have never thought about this before. Do you... I'm The idea that landscape and garden design isn't an art form had never occurred to me. And now I'm wondering what the, what the divide is. And, you know, we talk about art and design. Do you have a kind of working definition of what, of what the difference is and, and why maybe gardening sits between those two? I assume, and I apologise to people who might, might correct me on this, but I often think that the reason there's a group of people who say it can't be art is because it doesn't, it's not inert. It contributes to itself. But that's interaction, and there is still interactive art. You know, interactive yeah. art well, is now very, you know, it's very big. Yeah. So all the, all the more reason for gardening to be seen as, as, or the garden design to be seen as an art form. But I think that was a big part of it, is that there's more than the designer involved and requires control and contribution by others. But, um, I mean, it's interesting. Years ago, I think it was 2011, I did a garden at Chelsea Flower Show for the Principality of Monaco. And um, I, for reasons I'm sure you can understand, they, they, they can't just say, I want you to do something. They have to tender it to make sure they get a good price, etc. And, and this was a real problem because how do you choose it? To, you know, you want a certain designer. Uh, you can't really tender for that kind of thing when you know the style, et cetera, you want to go for. When I say style, you know, the approach, et cetera. And so it took them six months to work out that the only way to do this was to say it was a work of art. <laughs> and I think that's the first time that, that a garden had been actually officially categorized as a work of art, which I thought was a big moment for me. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I thought that was really quite significant. So that's more commissioning, commissioning a work of art rather than tendering yeah. for a product, which is what that, yes, absolutely. that process absolutely. implies, right? That anyone could do it with enough skill. But this is mm. no, this is a work of art. We're going to commission your... Mm. 
It's, it's a bespoke design. Um, as every every garden, every landscape that I'm involved is bespoke. You know, they're all different. And that's probably what's kept me interested for 45 years is that it's never the same. Yeah. Um, does do the wider... I don't want to call them necessarily divisions because I think some of them are actually quite healthy conflicts. But, the, you know, there's, a, there's certainly a sense, a moment that we are either becoming more different or more aware of how different we already were on certain things, on big values, on politics, on how we're working through some of these very painful issues around identity and um, what we owe to each other and the language that we use and all of those kind of things. Um, and I know from speaking to people who work in museums that a lot of that's showing up in museums and 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 the, and the fine art world through, you know, decolonizing things that's showing up in universities and lots of these big industries and institutions are wrestling with this moment. Is it is it coming through in gardening or is is it a kind of protected space I guess maybe because it's less words-driven. I, I think there's some evidence of it, but but one thing that I really like about this area of work is there's more that joins you than separates you. Uh, and I think people with great differences still join together in a passion for, particularly a passion for plants. And I, I, I'm fortunate enough, I, you know, I've worked all over the world and, I, you know, I have friends from all over the world that are instantly connected through a passion for plants. And it's a kind world and we are all very different, you know, and you know, I've, I've been to India and China and South Korea and, you know, throughout Europe, etc. which is one of the joys because I look at different cultures and different communities and different landscapes and those landscapes, you know, in part, or maybe, you know, majorly affect how those cultures have developed and the response to the environment they live in. But that's what I learned from. Uh, so I think, I always think that a difference of opinion is healthy. Uh, on, on the same way, you know, it's, this, it's really an extension of why. We all think differently, but why do we think? You know, I always think that it's, it's debate is fantastic. Um, it, it's where it becomes controlling and extreme that it gets very difficult. And I think that's brought about by pressures, you know, whether it's pressures between um, countries and borders, populations, movements of populations build stress. But generally, I think that... that it, it's a, it's something that really connects because everywhere you go, there is nature. You can't escape nature. So it br it brings all of those communities together. You know, and we're now working on, you know, one of my biggest worries is the lack of connection um, in urban areas. People don't have that that brings people together. And there's a big move now on community gardens and how... I mean, for the health of the environment and the climate uh, crisis, you know, we need more nature in cities. And part of that is gardens. You know, they make a fantastic wildlife corridor. They provide opportunity for wildlife, um, pollinators, etc. And it's, it's, you know, it's been proven that, that gardening and nature in general supports and is good for mental health. You know, it's, it's, 
at one time, you know, it was kind of slightly poo-pooed, you know. <laughs> Who wouldn't be happy if you got the time to plod around in your garden deadheading a few things? But it goes considerably deeper than that. A lot of research in, in Japan, for instance, on forest bathing, how, how this really supports both mental and physical health in the reduction of stress, etc. So I think it's really important, this movement, to bring nature back into cities, to reconsider, not only for the environment, but for human communities, human health. You know, community gardens break down loneliness. They build, they build shared experiences which is so important to make communities, diverse communities come together. And I think that that's where you get people from very diverse environments coming together in a shared interest, where they can begin to learn about each other. And fear is one of the things that makes people stand back. And, and you can break down that fear. And what a great place community gardens are to do that. I'm going to finish with um, a final question about the Psalm 23 garden, which, uh, you know, was delayed for a year um, after last year. It's been in the works for a long time and mm. um, is due to be shown in September. And some of our listeners may be uh, Chelsea goers, may already have their tickets, but others will, I'm sure, catch sight of it on the very enormous media coverage that Chelsea gets every year. What what are you hoping that garden will communicate? What is in that text that you would like people to, to, to feel or respond to? And, and for a complete new, how, how, how do you hope to do that? How will the garden, how will the garden speak? It's a difficult one. What I'm aiming to do is to get an emotional response from the visitors that he restores my soul. That, that is, it's a hard thing to do when you've got so many people walking around on a, um, a show ground. It takes probably less than six seconds to walk past a show garden. And in that time, you have to stop them. You have to engage with them. They want to know more. That, that's a, that's a, a, a tall order. So the, really the story behind the Psalm 23 garden is you're out on a long walk and you just come across that auspicious place. It may be dappled light coming through a tree with an opportunity to sit there and just be for a few minutes or a bubbling brook where you can sit on a rock and just contemplate, enjoy, listen to the birds. It's about, if you like, connecting people with just being. And I think that's really important because in this fast world, we don't have that much time to just be. And I think with the pandemic, people will be all the more receptive to that because they are learning that we've been forced to sit down and just be. And they understand how important nature is in allowing that to be a comfortable and restoring process. Sarah Eberly, thank you so much for talking to me on The Sacred. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says, so please do send this or another episode to a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or my personal favourite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support, and Emily Down for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley, and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley, with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the think tank Theos, 
And you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.